Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 23 is where we find ourselves. This book is almost coming to a close, guys. Not yet, but we're on our way there. And it's been a joy for me to teach it, for the other pastors have, who have as well. And I know it's been a blessing to our souls and God's word for us through this book. So I'm going to read the full chapter. It's 29 verses, as lengthy as most of these chapters are. But if, I, if, I, if I'm going to get something right is read the scriptures. That's the one that never, that is perfect as I seek God's help to then explain it and preach it. But 1 Samuel 23 says this. This is the word of the Lord. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Akilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Akilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Akilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a, with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told saw that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, and to go down to Keilah, and besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into the, his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Sif. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Sif and Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh? 
on the hill of Hachilah, which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where, he, where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with, a, with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they rose and went to Sif ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of, of, of Maon, in the, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard this, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon, and Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A message came to Saul, saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the stronghold of Enjadi. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word that never returns void. And we have the privilege of having before us, now that it's been read, help us to understand it, bring conviction, even bring salvation to some who might not know the saving work of Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You know, we live in a world where it's sometimes difficult to make sense of life. Because of our own experiences, if we've lived long enough and depending on what we've lived. Or just because you turn on the TV and you see, or put on the internet and see everything happening around our world from shootings in Texas, from what happened in this school or what's happening in Ukraine or what's happening in so many cities and around the world. We could, endless stories of the frailty and the fallenness of man, that of which none of us are exempt. Ever since the fall, we have lived in a world that is precisely that, fallen. And we all suffer the consequences to various degrees. And sometimes it's difficult to make sense out of life. And as we read this passage, and as we've been reading the book of 1 Samuel, there's so much happening that is representative of the fall, of the sinfulness that is in this world, and the schemes of the enemy. But I want us to see as we, there's a lot happening in this text, there's a lot of movement in this passage. I want us to know that although we vividly see and experience the fall, God is at work, ultimately in Christ, to save and encourage his people. Though we vividly see and experience the fall, God is at work in Christ 
to save and encourage his people. As we set up the context of this passage, we are reminded that this is one of the darkest moments in the history of Israel. It's a dark moment even in this book. In the previous chapter, as we saw last week, Saul has ordered the death of Ahimelech, the priest, and his entire priestly clan, which is family members. Eighty-five priests were killed, and then on his order at the at the a town of Nob, where all this priestly family was from, um, they, the entire town was slaughtered. Men, women, children, oxen, donkeys, sheep. And we saw in the text the contrasting nature between Saul, the one who is still physically the king, and David, the one who is the rightful anointed king. Saul has been rejected by the Lord because of his sin, because he has no heart for the Lord, and yet God has now anointed David, who hasn't emerged yet as the visible rightful king, but who's on his way there. But in the meantime, there's great tragedy, and this Saul who is out to murder David. And we see, and we said last week, and we see again today, the contrast between the two. And the more we get into the story, whatever degree of contrast there is, it seems to be further and further apart, vastly different. And perhaps we see most clearly in the words of Saul and in the words of David, even from last week, how in chapter 22, verse 16, Saul tells Ahimelech before he kills him, he says, oh, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the chapter ends in verse 22. Three, when this one son of Ahimelech, who's a priest, escapes and finds his way to David, the contrasting words of David, how he says to this man, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks your life seeks my life. Um, with me you shall be in safekeeping. Oh, in other words, Saul Although he's the king of Israel, he's supposed to be a savior, rescuer of his people, turns out to be a destroyer, one who promotes death, not salvation. And yet we find David, even in the most limited ways, because he is on the run, without any resources, without an established kingdom, even then he is out to preserve life and to rescue and the reason is that Saul hasn't heard the voice of the Lord in many years, if ever. Ever since the Spirit at least departed from him, he has no framework to go to God. And he never again, the rest of his life, will hear a word from the Lord, truth from God. And we see that even as the chapters evolve, things get worse and worse for Saul. In the next couple of chapters, you'll see that he'll even be searching for mediums, sorcerers, to try to find a word. Oh, demonic forces working all around Saul to the point of eventual death. But we find in this chapter quickly, in 23, that David, um, he does the opposite as he's confronted with different tasks with different decisions that he needs to make. He seeks out the Lord. He, 
He wants to hear from the Lord. He needs his voice. He needs his word. Oh, what a contrast. That even though David is on the run, in these first five verses, as he's escaped from Saul now about five times, this this has been a long period of time, he now finds himself in this predicament where he's hearing about the Philistines attacking this town, Keilah. Well, he hears in verse 1, behold, the Philistines, he is told the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing their threshing floors. Imagine what they were experiencing in that town. Imagine being in their shoes. The Philistines are coming in to plunder, to take all the crops, to take all of their food supply. I mean, we've all experienced the, the, the moment where maybe we, we did some groceries and we found the next day that we left a bag in the trunk that needed to be refrigerated that now we have to throw away. What do you do? We just go to Publix or Sedanos and go grab another one. Imagine now in this context where there are no such conveniences that then you would find that your livelihood are the crops that you grow This entire town is dependent upon the grain that they gather, and here comes the Philistines to take it all away. Could you imagine what they were going through? And it's interesting to note that verse 6 tells us that Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, that we saw in last chapter, apparently when he meets with David, when he escapes from Doeg, the one who is murdering his entire family, he goes and meets David in Keilah, which commentators seem to suggest that as Saul was giving the order to destroy the 85 priests and the town of Nob, where their priestly family was from, at some moment, with some overlap, here is David now with Abiathar showing up receiving word that the Philistines have come to attack Keilah, and David is considering now, as Saul is destroying, David is considering the saving of life. And imagine that, and David with all that he has going on. Well, David knows what it is to be a soldier already. He was in charge of the armies, and you remember that the song, uh, you know, David, he killed 10 of 10,000 and Saul much less, and Saul was a little jealous. Well, David was known already as a man of war, a man of strategy. And, and as he's considering this, you know, he understands that the Philistines are attacking, and, and, and he might have responded in many different ways. Like, hey, it's not my time. I'm not, I'm not the one to go. Um, I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm trying to survive on my own. He could have had a very different posture. He could have made decisions. Now imagine that this brought a lot of frustration to him because he is limited and he's running from this crazy king who happens to be his father-in-law. And he has 600 people, 600 men who we saw last week are a bunch of misfits, a bunch of troubled people, troubled in heart, who are 
loaded with debt and all types of problems in their lives, maybe as a result of the reign of Saul or self-inflicted pain. These were not warriors. These are just men who David is trying to build them into something. But he doesn't have a pity party because of this, and, and he doesn't trust himself. He doesn't make decisions on either way, on either side. What he does is he rather go to the Lord. He goes to the Lord because he wants to know what to do with the Philistines. Oh, Saul in chapter 14, he goes to the Lord because he wants to know what to do with the Philistines and he hears no answer. And yet David, he goes to the Lord and he hears the answer. He has the same questions. What do I do with the Philistines in verse 2? And God says, answers immediately, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. So he goes to where his men are in verse 3. He's like, okay, this is what the Lord wants us to do. Let's get on the same page. Let me give you some training, some strategies. I know you guys aren't warriors. I know we are low on supplies. I know that, hey, but God said we must go. But these men get scared. Uh, um, are you crazy? <laughs> We're here hanging out with you in the wilderness and in these caves because uh, we, we have so many problems, so many issues, that perhaps that biggest problem is Saul, and now you want us to deal with the Philistines as well? But David, he could have got upset at that moment. You guys have no faith. Or maybe he was sort of convinced by them, hey, wait a minute. Maybe it's compassion. Maybe it's weakness in his own humanity. But we do know this, that he goes back to the Lord. Lord, uh, let me make sure I heard you right. Because visibly, physically, it doesn't seem like there's agreement here. Everybody's like, no way. And he receives word from the Lord again. And now, but the Lord in his kindness, he's not just telling him, go and fight the Philistines. He adds some comfort, encouragement to that. Because he says, go and fight the Philistines because I will deliver them into your hands. So verse 5 tells us that they did exactly that. We don't have the details of how they accomplished that. But we do know this, that he defeated the, Philist the, uh, the Philistines. And I'm sure that throughout Keilah, the songs of David's victory began to resound. But in verse 7 through 14, we find that Saul has heard about David being in Keilah. And he probably heard about the fighting, and he heard about the victory, and he should have responded. How should have Saul responded? Which is interesting how he responds at the end. No care about the Philistines. He should have said, should have said oh my goodness, the Philistines were attacking? Praise God that David and his men freed Keilah. Although that's not what I would have wanted. I would have done, wanted to do myself, but, but no, but that's not his mindset. There is no evidence of that. As soon as he hears that David is in Keilah, oh, he says he's so twisted in his mind, and he even uses God. He tries to twist things in such a way that he says in verse 7, 
that once he heard word, he said, God has given him into my hand. God has given him into my hand. For he shut himself by entering a town. It was a town that was very secure. It probably had walls. It had bars. It had doors. It was highly secured. And Saul thinks, oh my goodness, this must be the work of God. And how, how blind is he and how misguided is he to even think that? To think that God is showing him favor and blessing him. Interesting how he takes something that is sinful and wrong and abomination before the Lord and tries to convert it to look as something good. How scary is it to think that we have and do the same? Oh, we could so justify our sins and our actions twist things that are not pleasing to the Lord, to justify them in such a way, to present them as if God is condoning or supporting or affirming these decisions. You've heard how people say, hey, hey, um, um, I, I believe in God my way. Not what the word says, how I think. You know what they're saying? I'm making right and good what is bad and wrong in the Bible. And then say you believe in God. A scary thought to think. So what does Saul do? Akilah has been saved, but now I am going to go and seize once again the town. They're picking up the pieces and he's trying, they're thankful because freedom has come. And now here comes Saul to sort of take control of this city. And he's a crazy madman that anything can happen. He's chucking spears at his son Jonathan and at uh, David, he just murdered almost the entire priestly order. How crazy is that? Now he wants to go to Keilah. And David is concerned. Because of him, Saul is going to come. So he needs to flee. And what does he do? David, he doesn't, again, bring all the strategy and the ways in which he could, I've survived this far, I must be pretty good at this. Let's go, men, let's go. No, no, he goes back and he needs to receive a word from the Lord. But this time, this time, the priest is now with him. He has come, and he tells him to bring the ephod that is part of the priestly garb, and how then in the process, and we don't know exactly how it all works, but how the priest would consult the Lord. And in these first five verses, David was on his own and he was asking the Lord, but now he has this priest. So he, he calls the priest. I need, I need to receive a word from the Lord. And he asked the Lord two questions. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into Saul's hand? Yes, Keilah, the people that I just rescued, will they deliver me into his hand? And will Saul come down as your servant has heard? To both, it's yes. Oh, yes, yes, David. The Lord says, yeah, they will betray you. And yes, Saul is coming. And it's crazy to think, why would Keilah surrender, deliver David to Saul? You might be want to say, well, I would never do that. Well, maybe you would. Because every, every, every single one of us at some point 
different degrees have betrayed the trust of another. And when we are in self-interest and self-preservation mode, we will do many things. Put yourself in their shoes. They have probably heard about the 85 priests that have died, of the town of Nob that has been destroyed. They know that Saul is crazy and out to kill David, and you want him to come here? No, no, I think we'd rather be under his good graces and just give David over. And David escapes. Saul comes and does not find David, but what a reminder. What a reminder that people will fail us, that we will fail each other, and that what we need to do is trust in the Lord. That's what David does as he finds this information. He entrusts himself primarily to God, the one that never fails, the one whose word and truth is always dependable, on whom he needs to stand and for God to be the foundation of everything that he does as he then lives to be a rescuer, a savior for his people. But look where David goes. It's interesting. He has 14. He has 600 men. He heads out. Not, he's already saved Keilah, but the text tells us in verse 13 that he goes wherever they could go. In other words, they have nowhere to go. Let's go find the cave again. It's 600 of us. How do we do this? Let's go find, hide in the wilderness. And the text tells us that Saul saw every day to kill his life. Imagine that. Imagine the picture. Saul can be in his palace. He could go after David, chase after David whenever he wanted to go physically. He could send some men, but he, he could go physically and, you know what, I'll do nine to five today. And then I'll just go back home to my palace, take a nice shower, have a good meal, take a good night's rest, and try again tomorrow. Oh, that was every day for Saul. The every day, the every day for David was we had to go wherever we needed to go. And that must have been extremely difficult. And David must have struggled in the wilderness trying to survive as Saul is living first world order life, pursuing him. How do you hide 600 men, especially these men? I have six children. I can't imagine hiding my own family. Eight of us in, a, in some type of circumstance like that. Imagine all the pressure that he had. But it says at the end of verse 14, look what it says. The end of 14 says, but God did not give him into his hand. See, I wonder if David was aware of that. I, w I wonder if that's something that he had in his mind. And I think he does not because verse 15 tells us a clue here. It says that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. These are the things that David saw with his eyes, the things that were visible 
before him. This is what he had present in his mind and in his heart. Perhaps he was losing sight of the fact that God did not give him into his hand, that God had promised. Perhaps this is a low point for David where he's very focused on the things that he sees, and the things that he sees are very threatening to his life. He doesn't see this, and, and I think the reason why maybe we could say that he's in a low here right now, he has concerns, and just focusing on the things that he could see, because we see in the kindness of God how he sends a friend to comfort him. He sends his friend to remind them what we know from 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. And perhaps David is struggling right now because all he could see is Saul because his predicament is real. And we've all been in these situations where what is before us is so difficult, so challenging, so mind-absorbing that those are the only things that we could see and we forget that God is sovereign and we forget that He is at work and we don't fully understand what is going on and we fall apart with anxiety and all the things that we begin to feel because we just forget that idea that God has already accomplished. Our greatest problem has been resolved. That is the problem of sin. This is David's normal. Just imagine, it's exhausting how we read last week one of his psalms, Psalm 57, how you see the ebb and flows of his sorrow and plea and then his confidence in his all-powerful God and Savior. Another psalm of David, Psalm 6, verses 2 and 3, just to get a picture of how he thinks and how he lives his life. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? How long? Till when? And the Lord is kind to minister to his sinful servant. Even David, who is the one who points to us the future king, King Jesus. His servant is tired. So what does he do? He sends him a friend. He sends him in his desperate moment. He sends him Jonathan at the right time to meet his needs. Jonathan is aware of the situation, I'm sure. He's heard about all that his dad is doing. But Jonathan, what he does, he acts. He acts upon this understanding that his friend is in trouble, that he needs a word of encouragement. So verse 16 tells us that Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand by God. This is meaningful in his life. And it's interesting that the author says, Jonathan, who we've met many times, he says, Saul's son, I think what he's saying there, Saul's son is, although he has issues with his dad, is living very comfortably. He too is in the palace. He too is eating three square meals. He too has a bed to rest. He too has comforts and privileges. But he leaves all that. He risks his life. He risks a lot here to go and be a friend to David. What a beautiful picture of friendship, a beautiful picture of ministry, 
of love and care. Jonathan loves David and he loves and cares for him. And he knew that David was in need. So he, that he needed to hear something different. That he needed to see beyond just Saul. And David sees Saul. That's what he sees, the problem. But Jonathan has come so that he could see beyond Saul, so he could see the realities of what is. He wasn't just there to give him some food. He wasn't just there to hand him a bar of soap. He wasn't just there to say, here's a bug out bag. You need more supplies for your journey. None of that. He went to encourage him, to him for him to see beyond what is visible so that he could see what the Lord is doing. Because this is what we see in verses 17 and 18. And he said to him, Jonathan, to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be the king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. How interesting. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained in Horish, and Jonathan went home. So we don't know the terms of the covenant or what they did and how they did it, but we do know that it was a special moment. And when they covenant together, it is, I mean, where two people covenanted, there's blood and the sacrifice of animals, and there's a process here. But it's always done before the Lord, so there's a great awareness of the presence of the Lord. And it's like, Jonathan, I have to go back, and this, but man, not only do I have you, I'm praying for you, but I, I came to let you know to not dismay. The Lord has established you as the king of Israel. My question is, who knows where David would have been if the Lord had not intervened in that moment by sending his friend with such a message? Maybe that would have been the end of David. But God in his purpose to preserve ultimately the redemption of his people through this anointed king who will then from his lineage bring the, the true and saving king, Jesus, his life had to be preserved. And oh, the kindness of God. A friend who takes risks to help his friend. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite authors, the, the book Life Together, I recommend you read. And if you're wanting to read that as a whole church, eventually we will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian, was was a seminary professor, was a pastor, was a disciple maker during Nazi Germany in the 30s and 40s, and he was very outspoken. At some point, the counsel that Dietrich got was to, you need to leave Germany because you're going to die. You need to go to the States, and he does. He spends some time here in the States. He's still writing. He's still doing his thing, but he's concerned about, he's worried about his friends, the seminary, the church, the relationships, the church over there. And against the counsel of others, he decides to go back to Germany because he wants to encourage them. Eventually, he's captured and he's killed right before the war ended. But in the book Life Together, because, man, they had to do life together. They needed to be the church. Like, that book is like every other, every other sentence is tweetable. It's that good and has such good nuggets of truth about community and what it means to be Christians together. But listen to what he says, how, and the reason why I bring this up is how he is Jonathan-like and how he approaches David. Bonhoeffer says, the Christian needs another Christian 
who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brothers are sure. And that also clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. And I want you to understand that rest assured that there's nothing impressive about Jonathan here. Jonathan is not David's rescuer, his savior. Jonathan is not this man who we say, wow, you know, what's happened here is that God has moved the heart of Jonathan. God has given Jonathan a supernatural, an otherworldly almost, what prince, heir to the throne, would relinquish his right to love and to say, you are the rightful king, if it is not the work of the Lord. He's there before the rightful anointed king because God has moved the heart of this man to take a word of encouragement to him. And he shows up with precision, surgically telling him exactly what he needs to hear from the truth of God. And afterwards, he goes home. He goes home. They spend some time together. They probably hug each other and say, brother, here's your predicament. Here's mine. Let's go live our lives. And we see how the Lord does this. And we converge one time, see each other again at some point, Lord willing. It's interesting because when it says in verse 18, and Jonathan went home, basically what it's saying in verse 19 is, and life is still happening. Nothing's changed for David. He's still struggling with the same issues. Life is still at intense moments. The issue of Saul and the issue of, of the enemy attacking because the enemy doesn't want him to be the rightful anointed king. doesn't want him to take his throne because Jesus is on the way and the enemy knows that God is redeeming his people and needs to somehow disrupt. So verse 19 through 29 is a chunk that I just want to just condense because it's in some ways more of the same, but we see it augmented. We see it multiply. Why? Because now we have the Ziphites, this group of people, Last chapter, it was Doeg, who was the, you know, the guy trying to be under Saul's graces. Yeah, I think I saw David. Yeah, I'll go murder all those people for you. Saul, make me one of your, your trusted men. Now it's a, the Ziphites, the whole town, and, and these, these are a bunch of snitches who are like, King, um, isn't David here among us? We could help. And Saul's like all strategizing with them. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, why don't you guys go and find every, every, every ravine and just find and do some reconnaissance for me and, and let me know. And if, you, if, if we pinpoint his whereabouts, just call me and I, and I might just go and we'll take care of this David. And eventually that's exactly what happens. Apparently David and his men are found and here comes Saul with his army and, and the Ziphites. It's just more the same. 
And the text tells us that Saul is on one side of the mountain and David, he crosses to the other side of the mountain with his men because he has the mountain as protection. So how would you attack likely if you're Saul? You, you're not gonna go over the mountain because you go over the mountain, you lose him. Most likely you're gonna do some type of st strategic maneuver and they're closing in on David. But God's providential work and promise that he will not be defeated or captured, that he will one day be established as the king of Israel, the anointed one. Verse 27, we see the providential hand of God. Someone shows up, a message shows, shows up, whether it's a piece of paper or whether it's an actual person, a messenger came to Saul and said, hurry, hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid against our land. Well, when, when Saul heard about the Philistines, Attacking Keilah, he didn't really move much. He seemed to be more concerned about David than he was about the Philistines. But for whatever reason, Saul abandons the military operation to capture David. And he decides that, no, no, we need to go and deal with the Philistines. Why? Well, I think just like Jonathan shows up to see David because of the grace and the work of God that moved him to do so, in the same way, Saul just doesn't operate on his own. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Oh, God is like, you know what? It looks good, Saul. You all, you smell it. Let me see how easy I divert you, how I distract you and lead you in another direction because that, my son, you're not gonna touch. David, you will not touch. So that's the story, guys. Four truths I want us to take home with us. Four truths as we consider this reality that although we experience vividly and see the fall, God is at work in Christ ultimately, to save and encourage his people. And the first thing I want us to take home is we need to know God's word and live by God's word. We need to know and live by God's word. Saul never pursued the Lord. He never sincerely saw his voice. He didn't have the spirit of God. He tried to use and fake his way as a servant. But for David, it was different. The, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord was with him. And in his sinful ways, at times, David is sinning, and he's a man. He's not the Christ. He's just a type of Christ, pointing the way to the rightful one. He's a sinful man who, in his life, sinned in great ways, and we have the evidences from his own writings, the stories. But David had a heart to he was a man after God's own heart. He wanted God's word, God's voice. He did so through different means. He, when he was on his own, he, he prayed. When he had priests next to him with, with the ephod, he went down that route. And, and, but I want us to know that that's Old Testament time. For us, it's different. For us, we don't, because the Spirit of God now permanently dwells in the believer 
because we have God's word fully ours to read and to receive and take in, we could find wisdom from God through his word and the conviction of his spirit. We don't need a priest to tell us. We don't need the casting of lots to figure things out. We don't need to see witches and espirititas and whatever else you may find in Miami. None of it. You have the Spirit of God and God's Word. We don't need modern-day apostles and prophets. We have God's Word and His Spirit. This is why James is able to say in James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We need to come to the Lord like David did to seek guidance within his context. But we have access to the throne room of grace. Because we have the Spirit of God, we have the Spirit of God. Why? Because Jesus accomplished it all. Because he drank the bitter cup. He paid our debt. He has justified us by giving us his righteousness as he dealt with our unrighteousness. And then we have access to the throne of grace because of him. Because we've been covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God, when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, and therefore, we can call him Abba Father. We are sons, adopted sons and daughters of God. We come to Christ. We come to God with confidence because of Christ. And how sad when we don't, when we look for worldly things, when we try to find answers in the things of this world, in the things that are short-sighted and things that are fallen and things that are not enduring. We must come to the Lord through His Word. We need to know it and we need to live by it. Secondly, we need to trust in the providential hand of God. I say hand because oftentimes it speaks of, and he was freed from the hand of Saul, from the hand or God didn't deliver them into his hand. So I want us to see the hand of God providentially at work. David is facing a more powerful king than him physically. A king that in every human sense should intimidate David. And he did. And David at times is taking out the calculators and trying to do the math. How many swords do we have? My sword of Goliath, the one I've been carrying, not, not enough. How many swords do we have? How many shields do we have? How much food do we have? How many supplies do we have? Would not make sense. If you do the calculation, it would have been a lose-lose. If you go just by what you see, it would make absolutely no sense. But David's been here before, even in his struggles of sometime deep in his faith and sometime struggling with his doubts. He's been here before. Because everybody thought, oh, everybody's like Goliath. Um, no, that go work. David's like, come on. It is going to work. Oh, Saul, 
was after him, sought him every day. But the truth of the matter is that God did not give him into the hand of Saul. Why? Because God's hand was maneuvering. His providential hand was at work. We have a Savior, a God and Savior in Jesus Christ who has proven himself to wield his strength and providential hand of power and grace to rescue us. And David knew the salvation of the Lord even in moments of weakness as Psalm 54, 7. In that moment he proclaims, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So let us not just live by what we see, but let us live by faith. Let us not be like doubting Thomas, who until he saw Jesus risen from the dead, would he believe when Jesus appears to him and says, hey, Thomas, put your hand right here and right here. Oh, you believe because you see. He says, blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. So let us not live life just looking at the things that we see, but let's see beyond that and see the things that have been promised to us in Christ, that no matter how we feel, those truths do not change. Because we have a glorious, promise-keeping, all-sufficient Savior, amen? Who will not leave us nor forsake us, so when we fear, I get it, there's a human frailty to our fear, but the providential hand of God, whether brings waves of pain and fear for us, will ultimately pass into glory and grace for us. We need to trust in the providential hand of God. We need to know and live by God's word. Thirdly, we must not forget the blinding nature of sin. Saul is the poster child of what sin does to a man. In rage, he misunderstands God's word and his logic. Even, you know, when, he, when, he's, when he's with the Siphites, he's like, okay, the Lord has, has, maybe the Lord is blessing you with the ability to find David. Go find him. So this whole notion that God is favoring him as he is pursuing David to kill him. As Jonathan says, oh, he knows. He knows that you're the rightful king. How twisted and how blinding is the nature of sin. And what a reminder that the more we pursue sin, the greater the tragedy and the destruction. If you're a non-believer here today, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that you live your life by twisting what is evil to make it feel good. By confusing yourself onto what is right and what is wrong to justify your actions in order to prop up a pseudo self-righteousness because if you don't have Christ, the only way that you can think of being saved and being in heaven is through your own self-righteousness and your own good works. And you somehow have to believe that your good works are sufficient on the basis of denying the realities of your sin. So you need to repent and turn to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. The only one who could save you is not you. It's someone else outside of you 
the one whom God has sent, the one who God secured, even through the pages of the Old Testament, even through this book, that through God's providential sovereign hand, he delivered to a sinful people a savior who would then forgive fully, not on the basis of works, but on the basis of grace, the righteousness of another imputed to us. And if you are a believer, beware of giving in to sin. We've been hearing lately of many pastors who have been exposed because of their sexual abuse. Horrific what's happening. Not just pastors, it happens everywhere and happens among Christians. The Southern Baptist Convention is hurting right now because of a report that came out exposing a number of pastors who are guilty of sexual abuse. Listen, if that's not a warning for us, I love the words of John Owen, a Puritan. He says, be killing sin or it will kill you. And we say that from every sphere of Christian life to every single one of us. Run from sin. Run from sin and repent of it for your salvation if you have been trusted in Jesus. Repent of your sin, turn to him and be saved. But run from sin for the sake of Christ, the one who has saved you for your very own sanctification and for the glory of his name. We must not forget the blinding nature of sin. And lastly, we need godly friends that love and care for us. We all need a Jonathan people who will love us and care for us, people who can remind us of the promises of God, people who will, like Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of, the, of an enemy. You know who your best friends are? The friends who are willing to risk the relationship to love you well, to point you to Jesus. Because I've always said it, and I said it probably today, deep biblical relationships are the ebb and flow of offenses and reconciliations. That's what brings us the hedge of protection, the means of grace that the Lord has given to us, the church, other Christians. We need the church. We need one another. The, the, the friends in your life to love you and care for you if they're not Christians, they will not know how to love and care for you. You need people who have understood the grace of God, who have been forgiven much, who have an awareness, a deep awareness of their sin and failure, the potential in them to sin themselves in grievous ways so that then they could come alongside you to encourage you when you are weak and down and when they are stronger in that moment. Galatians 6, if a brother is caught in a trespasses, you who are more spiritual, restore such a brother with humility. Basically, he says, because that might be you tomorrow. But we need godly friends. As John himself said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Or Philippians 2, 4, let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And as we think about Christian friendship and the need for us to be loved and cared for and for us to be that kind of friend, let us not forget or lose sight that the greatest friend is Jesus. The perfect friend is Jesus. The one who is always there, who has no sinful nature for him to betray you. The one who is faithful, the one who shed his blood for you, the one who came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, the one who came to die for sinners and to call you friend. This is the one who has risen from the dead and has the right hand of the Father pleading your case, Christian, if you have trusted in him. He is the greatest friend. And to see the providential work of God in your lives, even in the life of David, ultimately, God's providence is being centralized in the cross of Christ where that is the crux of all things. All things are redeemable. Why? Because God sent his son to shed his blood for all those who would be called by his name. And don't ever forget that the sin in us Every sin we commit, for that, those very sins, Jesus shed his blood. And yet, for those who have trusted him by faith and not by works, in our worst days, he still has us in the grip of his hand. Because it's not dependent upon us, but all about his grace. Now, as we vividly see and experience the fall, as man has always seen, what if we, we would think a little different and say, although I only see what is in front of me, what if I would be convinced that God in Christ has relentlessly, perfectly redeemed, saved, and is out to encourage each one of us who have trusted in him. What if we live with that truth in mind? How would we live? You know how, how we will live? Still with the ebb and flows of weaknesses and strengths. But hopefully as we get a better sight of those truths, those deflections, if this is God's purpose for us and we just deflect left and right, over here I'm in great despair and over here I'm, I guess, in great confidence, um, that these deflections would be less and less and less as he transforms us more into the image of his son. And we would live our lives being transformed in such a way that those deflections are tighter so that we would be more useful to the kingdom, m a better worshiper of, of the Savior, and one who could then with withstand all the winds and the fear that this world may bring so that we could say Christ is is the one who fixes everything.